Hey there, history fans. Clase Ir History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the modern age. I'm Melissa. Today we are taking a little break from factual history, and we're going to delve into legends and lore today, specifically supernatural Welsh lore. We'll be talking of fairies and dragons, Kelpies, and much more. And since there's so much fun to cover today, I have a little help from a familiar voice. Hello. Hello. Lauren? Lauren, that's you? Are you back? Yeah. Did you miss me? Maybe. (laughs) Excuse you? (laughs) That should have been a yes. Rude. Are we back back? Or are we we're back, back, we're back, back. We're back, back. Oh, we're yeah. Back. Oh, we're back, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's back, everybody. Hooray! Oh, you know, you missed me. You know it. Casey certainly missed you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, since you're here, you want to spin us a tale? Or maybe tale of some lore today. Want to start us off? Well, maybe I do. <laughs> Let's start off with the drag. Ooh, what's a drag? Dragons. <gasps> my fave. Dragons. <gasps> yeah. Okay, we're back to the usual. <laughs> so there is a legend surrounding the dragons of Wales which actually comes before the time of King Arthur, and which happens during the time of the Celtic King Vortigern. Am I pronouncing that right? Probably, I don't know. I don't speak Celtic. We're gonna go with it. Vortigern was looking for a place to build his palace and he discovered a location on Dinos Emrys. However, not a very good spot. To build your castle, though, Vortigern, not a good spot. And at the time, a young boy, who some to believe to, to have been Merlin, stated that beneath the outcropping where Vortigern wanted to build his castle, there was a lake below. And around that lake, there were two dragons. Vortigern, however, decided to continue to build there. And as the men dug to kind of, you know, build the where they would build the foundation of the castle he discovered that what merlin said was true there were two dragons one red which is the dragon we currently see on the welsh flag and the other white and they were fighting Hmm? oh yes battle 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 yeah ultimate dragon fighter In the end, the red dragon won. That is. That would explain why it's on the Welsh flag. Yeah, yeah. Who knew? Who would have guessed? <laughs> now, that's one spinning of the tale. Another way the t- story is told is that long before this, the red and the white dragon were already battling on top of the land not in this, not beneath the land in this cavern by a lake, but 
on top of the land where people were. And the red dragon was battling the white dragon because the white dragon was an invader. And this battle was rather fierce. And there were battle cries. And these battle cries were so loud that they actually affected the land and the people. Plants would die and women would miscarry, supposedly. In order to regain control of the land, the dragons were captured and placed in a pit containing meat and honey. Wait. Hmm? Wait, but meat is made out of honey. I know, but they added meat and honey together, supposedly, in this pit. I'm just telling you the way that this tale was supposedly spun. What they should have done is put a mead and some cider and make it a butt. Was it what, what's a mead and cider drink? I don't know which one you're talking about. It's a, it's a Renaissance drink. I forget what it's called, but you mix mead mm. and cider together. It's like a bee thingy. Or Cicer. Kaiser recipe for apple cider and mead. I don't know. I'm I've never I don't know which one you're talking about. So I'm huh. not really sure. But either way, they got drunk. The, the dragons were drunk for a period of time. They, they were stuck in this pit with mead and possibly honey. And after they became sober, the dragons would then continue their fight. And this fight continued supposedly for centuries. It's a long time for a dragon to live, but I don't know how long dragons live in Welsh lore. I couldn't find anything on that. And at some point during these centuries of fighting, Vortigern begins to build a castle in the area. However, of course, they're fighting underground, which is rocking the ground, and therefore the castle continues to fall apart. So it never gets finished, and Vortigern becomes annoyed. Annoyed Vortigern, who does not know about the dragons at this time, seeks counsel, and then the council recommends finding a fatherless boy to sacrifice, and this will appease the, the gods. So Vortigern goes on his hunt for a fatherless boy, and he discovers one who, once again, is supposedly Merlin. Merlin, as smart as he is, he's smart as a boy too, in order to save himself from being a sacrifice, informs Vortigern about the dragons, and Vortigern goes to find the dragons to set them free. Once Vortigern sets the dragons free, his castle is allowed to be built and Merlin's allowed to live. So Merlin doesn't become a sacrifice. Again, the dragons are fighting on land. And at some point in time, the red dragon does defeat the white dragon once again. And some even say that the red dragon's victory is a prophecy which foretells the coming of King Arthur. Yay, Merlin, Arthur, Vortigern, lots of, lots of overlap here. <laughs> Today, the red dragon is the symbol of Wales on their flag. And it really became the symbol placed on the Welsh flag actually in 1959, so pretty recent, as Queen Elizabeth II actually stated that the flag with the red dragon and a white and green background would be flown on all the government buildings in Wales. So very, very recent. However, the red dragon as a symbol or emblem in Wales has 
been used since approximately 655 AD when the United Kingdom was known as Britain under Romans. And it was also used at, <clears throat> excuse me, it was also used as a symbol at the Battle of Bosworth during the Wars of the Roses by Henry VII, who was the ultimate victor. And he was using the dragon as a way to prove that he was a descendant of Codwallader, who was at the time the last Briton king. Yeah, it was used as a way to prove that Henry VII, or became, who became king, actually had a, a right to the throne. So it's been used for years and years and years and centuries in Wales. It just recently became the major symbol of Wales on their flag. Hmm. Well, we'll have to maybe bring this back up when we do our series on the War of the Roses. I think you're giving things away. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Stop hinting at things. Five-part series coming up soon. <laughs> Five parts trying to make this very simplified because it's confusing. Let's not be off topic though. Back to topic. Um, no, I, I, uh, dragons are awesome. And, and Welsh lore is awesome. And we'll get back to that. And I was using, what's it called? Duolingo. Well, it's green. So I keep wanting to say it's Spotify. It's Duolingo. Yeah. Duolingo, right? When I was using Duolingo to learn Welsh, I you know, we came across the drag and I was like, oh my God. If I have a kid, I'm naming them Drag because how cool would that be to name your kid Dragon? <laughs> That'd be so cool. Oh my God. But at the same time, I feel like that poor kid would be bullied for their name. Um, if you just named your kid Dragon, I don't think they'll probably be bullied. That's a <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but people would need to know what Drag means in I school. Guess. I, I really can't see first or second graders understanding drag. Okay, maybe I'll just name the kid Dragon. It's it's a pretty awesome name. That that I can or Dracon. No, it sounds too much like Draco. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> what you don't want to name your child after the Harry Potter character Draco? Um, Draco I was thinking the Roman Emperor, but you go with that too. Well, they're both evil characters. I yeah, mean, really <laughs> well, speaking of evil, I'm uh, going to get into talking about potentially mischievous kind of evil, but not, not super sorcery kind of evil. So our next section is on the fairy folk. <laughs> it's a very, very long section, so bear with me. What kind uh, of fairy folk? On the the, the, the general categorization of fairy folk within Welsh lore. I'm not going into Irish lore or Scottish lore here. No, 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 no. Just just Welsh lore. But bear with me as I try to pronounce these names. Welsh is not that super difficult to pronounce, but it, it definitely takes a little practice. So fairy folk as a whole, typically goes by the name of Tulu Teg, or if we're in South Wales, Mendith Imama, 
And within the lore of the Welsh pantheon, there are many, 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 many stories about the Fae. And in fact, there are typically considered to be five types of the Tulith Teg. Ethithlon, or the Elves, Koblenau, Mind Fairies, Pubak and Puka, House Fairies and Will of the Wisp, Grangs Anun, or the Water Fairies, and Grithian, the Mountain Fairies. So according to... That's a lot yeah. of fairies. <laughs> I know when we started doing this, I told you, be glad you're not doing the fairy section. <laughs> I think I just got lost in all the names of the fairies. I'll get, I'll get around to it. <laughs> so fairies as a general, before we get into each specific category, uh, according to sacredtext.com, they are, quote, seen dancing in the moonlight dancing on the velvety grass clad in airy and flowing robes of blue green white or scarlet and it's said that if you are a human who they select to favor they will bestow their blessings upon you if you keep kind words to them and don't share their secrets that they've passed on to you you will be forever in their good graces however if you anger them you will incur their wrath and in fact, um, in, in modern witchcraft, there are people that practice uh, and, and give offerings to the Fae. And there are some rules about that. Essentially, again, be nice. Make sure you give them the correct offerings and you are consistent with it. Because if not, then the fairies will get mad and you will be in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> Always may try to maintain a happy relationship with the fairy folk. So in terms of some of the stories, many, many, many of them typically start off with people wandering around the woods or the mountains in Wales, and they hear harps and fairy music, and they are said to follow the sound of the fairies to the fairy ring, step inside it, and are whisked away to the land of the fae, forever to be dancing in the fairy ring. So unless, of course, someone comes along and pulls you out of that fairy ring. So it's actually said that in the land of the Fae, you never go old. And what passes for minutes in their land is months or years even to ours. There's many stories on that. In fact, check out our link for sacredtext.com's section on life with the Fae, where friends, family members have gone off to the fairy world. They're not seen for years. And then a friend, a passerby or family member, happens to hear the fairy music wanders up to the fairy ring, seeing their long lost relative dancing in the fairy ring. The person is then in one way or another removed from said fairy ring. And they're like, dude, you've been gone like three years. I was like, dude, I've only been gone for five minutes. No, 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 you've been gone three years. And then either one of two things happens. The person who gets plucked out of the fairy world either dies and withers away to ash on the spot or dies just days later, the increase of the age in the human world catching up with them. So it's also, and I'll get to this in a minute, but it's also believed in some places in Wales that the fairy have a mutual relationship with goats. And no, not in that way. So in Wales, goats are sometimes believed to have occult intellectual powers and, quote, possess more knowledge than their appearance dictates. There's might be a little something to that, because if you think about a variety of different pagan 
religions back in the day and they did sacrifices, a lot of the sacrifices were goats. I mean, Black Philip is a goat. Yep. 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 So within their relationship, the Tulatang are said to actually comb the beards of sheep every Friday to make sure that they are well-groomed for Sundays. And in the fairy categorization, particularly that is actually associated with the particular fairy known as the Gulithyan or the mountain fairies. So going into the categorizations, the first we have is the Lady of the Lake or the Gurais Anun. And these are believed to be elfin women who live underwater but not at sea, they tend to dwell in lakes and rivers, quote, especially in the wild and lonely lakes on the mountain heights. And they are typically believed to be one of the types of fairies that serve as communication between the human world and the fairy world, which is known as Anun. And the fairy world is ruled by their king, Grin Apnuth. So there is a fairy king ruling all of and it's believed that due to the increases in population and human encroachment on the lakes and the rivers, as we've increased our populations, they are unable to continue to build their underwater cities. And because of this, they travel to sparsely inhabited freshwater sources throughout Wales. And more lore actually says that they create secret gardens on islands in the middle of lakes. The entrances are impossible to find and are only open to the human world on New Year's Day. It's very specific. Uh, if you happen to find yourself inside one of these hidden gardens on New Year's Day, rule number one, do not take anything out of these gardens. Bad luck will not only befall you, but you will never find your way back to these hidden gardens because they will be closed off to the human world. And the women of the Graith Anun sometimes even prefer to choose human males as their husbands instead of fairy males. And according to Monster Girl Encyclopedia, when the women are looking for a hum human husband, they will sit on the lakeside combing their long, beautiful hair while waiting for a young, handsome man to come by. And when the man sees the fairy girl, he is taken by her breathtaking beauty. And she is said to lead him on for three or four days before agreeing to marry him. However, before the wedding can happen, he has to pass the ultimate test. Because Anun are cousins to the fairy, and the fairies are typically known to use glamour and illusion magic, she sets up a test for him and presents this human male with her true form and an illusion form of herself and says, choose, which is it that you like? If he chooses correctly, they will then marry. And according to Chris O'Toole, if these fairy wives are struck three times unnecessarily by their husbands, they must return to their land of the fae, never to return, never to see their children again. And in addition, the emotions of these fairy women can actually run quite mild, quite wild. And they are also said to be known to be crying at weddings and laughing at funerals. So in appearance, it's said that their skin is very pale and is often typically seen as damp or dripping wet. And their clothes are often also said to be wet. Their hair is long, red, 
blue eyes and the tall lithe build. And in terms of clothing, it's believed that they typically have a preference towards Tudor clothing. <laughs> I thought you liked really? that. Really? Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah, really, really. I mean. Oh my God, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you would. Um, it's not always the case though. So the Gareth Anun likes typically just to wear clothing that doesn't make them stick out. But if you wear Tudor clothing in modern times, it might stick out just a little bit. Sounds kind of like they more wanted to blend in with whatever time period they were alive. Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So according to one of my sources, there's three stages of these ladies of the lake. The first is the childing, and these are the water babies and are actually unusually partial to bathing, unlike actual human children. And in fact, if a childling becomes baptized, it is actually said to laugh rather than cry when you dunk it in water. The second phase, which is more akin to a, the adult phase, is the wilder. And the wilder is pros at water sports. Duh. And this could be from jet skiing to swimming to even deep sea diving. And it's believed that in addition to being pros at water sports and being water sport enthusiasts, they also have very high grades in school, specifically excelling in physical sciences. And the third stage, I love this one, third stage, the elder stage in the Anun are known as grump. Sounds like they were grumpy. But they're not. This I know, it's just a name. It's just a name, I guess. I couldn't figure out why grump specifically, but it's apparently at this phase, they like to settle down and, and uh, just settle in like psychologists. And it said that despite being called grumps, they're actually noted to be very serene, happy, and good natured. And it's also said that because they were being raised in water, they never wrinkle no matter how old they get because they're always moisturized. And in terms of lifestyles and personality, they're usually very happy, friendly, typically creating lifelong bonds with families and friends. They prefer to live in the countryside near waters and lakes. And they are mostly skilled, particularly by profession, if not in water sports, also in medicine. So sometimes in a more modern sense, like a doctor, or sometimes in the more ancient sense, like an herbalist. So one of the most famous stories of the Lady of the Lake is the legend of Cromlin Lake, which is no located near the small village of Brighton Ferry, and is actually said to be a resort for the elfin fairies. Sounds fun. Uh, so according to legend, a large town resides under the water, and the Gradis and Nun also use buildings as structures for their palaces and these underwater cities. And some say that they've even seen these fairy palaces and the battlements that rise just, just below the water surfaces. You just have to look really, really closely. And those who claim to have seen these towers also claim that they hear fairy bells being rung from these underwater towers. And the story of how the elfin fairies actually came to reside here goes back a long, 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 long time to when St. Patrick was alive. Yes. So apparently, it's really long. Yeah. So apparently, Saint Patrick was on a visit to Wales. Uh, I've come over from Ireland to visit Saint David, who lived in Wales, just to say hi. So while they were taking a long walk along the right, the, the lakefront, talking shop as two saints do, I suppose, some locals saw Saint Patrick 
and began to verbally curse at him in Welsh, which sounds like fun, actually. <laughs> and it was because of this, they were mad because St. Patrick was originally from Wales and he left his native Wales to go to Ireland. So they were angry. <laughs> and at this hurling of insults, St. Patrick is said to have transformed the men into fish and the women into fairies. And one of the most common and very long told stories is that of the physicians of Mothfay. And this is supposed to be a very, very, very long line of male physicians who lived in the parish of Mothfay and Carmarthenshire and Wales. So the legend actually first appears written down in the 1200s and involves a father named Ruth Wathan, <laughs> I think it is, and, and his three sons, Karuan, Grufad, and Ainan. And they all end up becoming doctors to Ruskring, the Prince of De Barth. And this is said that the prince was actually wounded in battle in 1234, but unfortunately, despite his injuries, the prince died because I guess they were just too dire of injuries. And the Red Book of Herdegast, a book that actually dates to the 1300s, actually has passages on medicine and herbalism that are actually attributed to this particular family. So according to lore, the male line of the family remained physicians until 1739, when the last of the male line, John Jones, died. And in fact, there's actually a gravestone on the porch of St. Michael's and Mothfay, which actually identifies him as the last direct male in this particular family line. And it's also said that many physicians within the area also claim to be descendants of these original four, including Morgan Owen, Bishop of Trandoff, who died in 1645. And during his life, he actually inherited much of the remaining estates of these uh, physicians and Mothfe. Legends of the family were actually first written down specifically in 1808 by topographer Richard Fenton, and a more expanded version was written in 1841 in a collection by William Reese of Ton and Thlandovery. And there was a book in 1861 called Mythagon Mutfe by John Pugh. And according to Reese, a son of a widow was set to marry a beautiful maiden, this is the beginning of the story, who came to the lake at Plenty Fanfak, and she agreed to marry him with the one promise that he would never hit her more than three times without cause. And if he did, she'd return to her world without him and never return. So he agreed. They got married, had a very happy life, had three sons, and settled in a house in Esgerd Lathedi, near uh, Mothfe. And time would end up finding the husband striking his wife three times unnecessarily, because of course, that's how the story is going to go. The first is when apparently he struck her when he told her to go fetch the horse. The second, she was crying at a wedding. The third, she was laughing at a funeral. So at this third strike, she left the family, left her kids, and returned to her lake home, never to return. And it's said that the sons often wandered the lake, looking for their mother, hoping one day to see her. And one day she did appear. She appeared to her eldest son, Rirothan, and she told him that his destiny and lineage was to be that of a great healer. She gave him a collection of medicinal and med 
herbal prescriptions and instructions on how to do that, uh, create them and to use them. And she would occasionally come up from her lake to pass him more medical information. And over time with this information, he ended up traveling to the court of Louis Gulink, the, the prince, where he became a famous doctor. And in time, his sons also became court doctors. So the, the next categorization is the puka. Now I know you're probably gonna think in the same thing I am, puka is the name of the dog from Anastasia. And that's exactly what comes to my mind when I think. <laughs> I wasn't originally thinking that, but I mean, now that you put it in my head, yes. Oh, for as much love as you and I have for that movie, I, and that was literally the first thing my mind thought of when I thought of the, the name Puka. I really, I literally thought of Puka shells. Don't ask me why. Why not? Why not? But now Anastasia's in my head, and now I'm singing it in my <laughs> head. Thank you. You're welcome. And in Welsh, Puka is actually spelled P W C A, and that'll play come up in just a second. These are typically known as will-o'-the-wisps or even sometimes as hobgoblins. So in the English fairy categorization, these particularly, these particular fairies would also be referred to as pucks. Puka, puck. It's also P-W-C-A, P-W-C-K. Yeah, I can so, see that. Yeah, yeah. And the puka are believed to to have lights at the end of their fingers. And in fact, where the fingerprint should be, they have lights there and they spin around like a wheel. And they're often seen in swamps, marshes, and bogs. So one incredibly famous story of the puka is that of a servant girl who lived in the town of Trun and Abergluton. And her main chore was to take food to the master puka. Who lived on the farm, an elf, right? And she would leave him a bowl of fresh milk and a slice of fresh bread every day. So one night, the girl, probably quite hungry, decided to eat the bread and drink the milk. Whoopsies. And after realizing her mistake, she just said, well, I maybe, what if I just left him the breadcrumbs and some water and put out the breadcrumbs and water for Master Puka? She went over the next morning to pick up the, the dish and saucer and noticed that none of the food or the water had been touched. The following day, she actually passed the area where she typically left these offerings for Master Puka and was seen by hands she couldn't see and were scratched. Master Puka found her mm -hmm, and told her that if she were to repeat this offense ever again, she'd suffer a worse fate. Another probably actually maybe even more common tale of the puka as a entity is regarding their more mischievous nature. So this story goes that a man was returning home from work when he saw a small light traveling in front of him. As the man looked closer at the light, he noticed it was carried by a very small figure who was kind of holding the lantern above their head. So the man, curious, followed this light for several miles, definitely going off course from his home. And all of a sudden, the man finds himself on the edge of a very steep cliff. The very moment he realized this, this small fairy and its light were seen darting across to the other side of the chasm, all the while laughing men menacingly. <laughs> mm. It is also then said that the 
fairy blew out its lantern, leaving the man to find his way home all alone in the darkness. So the next is the Pubak, P-W-B-A-C-H. And these are the house fairies, or sometimes known as brownies. Yum, 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 yum. And these particular fairies are often seen in houses, typically helping maids who've earned their favor. And again, if you are kind to the fae, they will be kind back. And the Pubak are also very similar to the Ethathon, which I'll talk about very soon. Appearance-wise, they are said to be quite ugly with rather unsettling features. They have brown skin, are often quite short, very rotund and round in nature, wrinkly skin and curly hair. And sometimes they wear rags as clothing, sometimes they wear nothing. Although sometimes you might actually see them sporting a rather nice tunic. Depends on the story. And it's said that their favorite food are dairy products, including milk and cream. But they apparently also really enjoy porridge and honey and will never turn down an offering of ale. So according to lore, if a maid needed to have her butter churn but didn't get the chance to finish it amongst all of her other chores before going to bed, she would leave it ready to work on in the morning, keep a fire going in the kitchen, to keep the kitchen warm, put out a bowl of fresh cream as an offering to the Poobok, and the Poobok would come and turn her butter. So in the morning, she'd find the bowl of cream empty and the butter churned well enough that she could just scoop it out. Another telling of the Poobok are, again, it's more mischievous nature. So especially if you get on their wrong side, as I've been mentioning, it's believed that they actually have the power to lift people, humans, these are probably not more than 18 inches tall, but you have the power to lift a human in the air, throwing them at a distance. And one of the stories even says that sometimes if there is a quote, a ghost who cannot sleep on account of hidden treasure that they want removed from their house, if they can succeed in getting a mortal to help them in removing the treasure, the said ghost employs a poobok to transport that mortal through the air. I find I want to read that story where you, you've got a ghost talking to a, a, a fairy. <laughs> I want to hear this. Story. I, I couldn't find it. I want to hear that story. <laughs> Darn it. I've got another fun one, though, for you. So this is Ooh, a very goody. Yes. Oh, this one's fun. This is a very fun tale of the Pubok. So as we said, they, they'll never turn down an offering of ale. So this is the story of the Pubok and the preacher. So legend goes that there was a Poobok living on an estate in Cardiganshire, and one day a friend came to visit the lord of the estate, and he also happened to be a Baptist preacher. So the Poobok was particularly fond of people who enjoyed sitting, whiling the night away around the fire, drinking ale, smoking pipes, and having all lots of fun. The preacher, of course, not fond of these activities, and a teetotaler. Preferred prayer to ale. So this, of course, angered the Poobok, and it said that one night as a preacher was kneeling to pray, the Poobok pulled the stool out from under him, causing the, the preacher to fall flat on his face. Other pranks he would pull would be causing the dogs to, mark, to bark madly as the preacher was trying to play, as well as various other disturbances while he happened to be visiting. 
and also happened to frighten the farm boys and the maids that worked at the farm. And one night, as the preacher happened to be crossing a field on the estate, the poobock attacked him. And the preacher related this later, saying, I was reading busily in my hymn book as I walked on when a sudden fear came over me. My legs began to tremble. A shadow crept upon me from behind. And when I turned around, it was myself, my person, my dress, even my hymn book. I looked at his face for a moment and then fell insensible to the ground. And not soon after, he was found on the ground, still insensible. And after recovering, the preacher took this as an omen to leave the estate ASAP. And in fact, the next morning, he grabbed his stuff, mounted his horse, and rode off. And the end of the story actually says that as the preacher rode off, one of the local boys on the farm saw the poobok jump onto the horse from behind, causing the horse to speed off like lightning, its eyes glowing like fire. It's on fire! <laughs> so our next fairy in the line is the Coblin, which sounds like a, you know, a familiar word there. Do you mean goblin? Yeah. Is it a goblin? It is a goblin. Oh, dang. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I was actually expecting you to say no. <laughs> nope, nope. That's no. <laughs> so goblins are mine fairies. So these classifications of fairies live in mines, quarries, and, and various tunnels underneath whales, not actually also unlike gnomes. And the word coblin actually can mean the word knocker, but also means sprite or fiend. And as we just said, might also be the origin of the word goblin. And it's believed that these knockers actually make sounds in these mines in order to show the miners where very rich veins of ore can be found. Their appearance is described as being a foot and a half or half a yard tall in height usually also considered quite ugly. But they are also unusually kind, helpful, and actually in, like making friends with the miners. And it's said that they also wear clothes similar to the miners themselves and even try to work the mines like the humans do. But because of their stature and their supernatural power, I guess, it doesn't really do a whole lot. Some people think that maybe they're just mocking the humans. Much like other fairy lore, if you treat them, good luck will follow. If you mistreat them or misspeak about them, they become very angry. And these particular fairies will even throw stones at you. Ouch. Yeah, and you're working in a mine. Mm -hmm. So one of the stories of the Coblin is actually related by Reverend Edmund Jones of Quint. And one morning, a man named William Evans was crossing Beacon Mountain when he saw a coal mine. Now, there was no coal mine known in the area at the time, so he was very confused. Evans says he even saw a coplin cutting coal, or saw several coplin cutting coal, filling sacks, putting them in sacks onto horses, just digging out the coal from this mine that isn't supposed to be there. And very much like the tales of them looking to do the work in the mines, it's also said to be a vision that leads humans to the coal mine veins. And there are other similar tales in the legend of the Coblin as well. There is one for the founding of the Esker Emun lead mine, which was established in 1751. And the Tlunclet, I hate this word, Tlunclet, 
uh, lead mine as well. So you have people claiming that they see these goblins and then leading them to these rich ore veins and dig and dig and dig. Next on our list, we're going high to the mountains, to the Gulithian, to the mountain fairies. And these are typically female fairies who are said to haunt the lonely roads in Welsh mountains and lead wanderers astray. So the word glith in Welsh also can signify doom, gloom, shade, dusk, fairy, witch, hag, and sometimes even actually goblin. It, 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 it's an interesting word, I guess. Uh, in this case, it's actually used for malevolent fairies which like the Ethelon, which I think is I'm going to talk about next, uh, are typically the more friendly fairies. Wanda parents of the Gulithian described her as the old lady of the mountains. So we have the young lady of the lake and the old lady of the mountains. And the story goes that there was one that haunted the Lanhuthel, <laughs> Lanhuthel, yeah, whatever, Lanhuthel Mountains and Monmouthshire. And she was the semblance of an old woman with an oblong four-cornered hat, ash-colored clothes, her apron thrown over her shoulder with a pot or wooden can in her hand, such as you would see poor people use to fetch milk, always going before the spectator, sometimes crying, well, which uh, apparently is the English translation of the Welsh call of distress, which goes, "waboob." And it said that anyone who sees this creature, whether during the day or the night, will lose their way, despite the road that they're on seeming familiar to them. And when the stories first began, it's also said that when travelers originally saw this old lady after they became lost, they rushed toward her, thinking she was a real person. But they could never seem to catch up with her or even ever see her face as she never turned around to look at them. And they just became more lost. So... One tale is, uh, comes from sacredtext.com and it says that there was a man named Robert Williams from Lankadoc and Krikau. And one night he was traveling over the Black Mountains when he realized that he was lost. At the same time, he saw the old woman walking nearby and he tried to hail her, but it seems that she, she, didn't, she didn't hear him. She didn't pay attention to him. So Robert, taking the old lady to be deaf, he ran towards her to try to get her attention. But the faster he ran, the farther she seemed to go. Weird. And soon he found himself in a marsh far from his home and realized he was now even lost more than before. And upon this realization, Robert heard the old lady cackling at him. And knowing immediately at this that she was likely a glyph, he pulled out his knife and she immediately vanished. That sounded weird, but I found out that apparently sometimes in Welsh lore, Welsh ghosts and fairies are afraid of knives. And if you pull one out, they vanish, also known as exorcism by knife. And it's said that if on a stormy light, night, a Galithian comes to your house for shelter, some are known to actually give it to them, not out of kindness, but out of fear. So the household must take quite care not to have any sharp objects such as knives or scissors, or or at least none visible near particularly where the fire where this fairy will sit because it's actually considered to be inhospitable wait that's not the right word Unhos unhospitable 
So it said it's okay to unsheathe a knife outside if a mountain fairy is nearby and you want them to go away, but it is considered rude to do it in your home, particularly when giving them shelter. And one of the major stories is that the legend of Kowalader's goat. So this goes that a man named Kowalader had a beautiful goat named Jenny. And he and Jenny were apparently always on very good terms with each other as master and goat. And one day, Jenny decided she was going to take off and run near to the nearby hills, even though she'd never done that before. So Kowalader chased after her, but she kept running farther and farther and farther. And at one point, his temper got the best of him and he threw a rock at her, which was a very, very bad idea. Because unfortunately, this caused Jenny to trip, tumble, and fall over the precipice of a cliff to her death. Poor Jenny. So in his panic and realizing what he'd done, Kowalavir rushed down to the very bottom of the cliff to Jenny's side where he actually held her as she died, all the while crying for his beloved goat. And he stayed there with Jenny for hours and hours, even as the moon rose above them. Astonishingly though, when the moon was above them, Jenny's body began to transform and she transformed into a beautiful young human woman. And once her transformation was complete, this maiden rose up from her place lying down, placed her black slipper onto one of the moonbeams shining down, held out her hand to her master. And when he grabbed it, he realized this wasn't really like any hand he'd ever hold on onto because um, it, it felt more like a hoof. And as soon as he took hold of her hand, in an instant, they were now on top of the highest mountain in all of Wales, surrounded by moonlight, mist, and lots of goats with shadowy, spooky horns. Mm -hmm. Does she drop him? Does she drop him? <laughs> Looking around him, though, once they were on this mountaintop, Waladir's like, they're, they're, there's all these goats bleeding, making noises. It's very ghastly din. What, what, what? Uh, I'm very confused. And at once he spotted a goat who seemed different from the rest. As soon as he saw this goat, he goes, oh, that, maybe that's their king. And at that same moment, this particular goat charged at Kowaladir, butting him in the stomach, sending him off the cliffside. Yes. Ugh, my it stomach is. hurts just thinking about that. A goat butting you in the stomach. Oh, got to rupture something. Your spleen, yeah. maybe? Yeah. Or maybe. break a rib and puncture a lung. Both. All of the above. Oh, yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Well, it said at the end of the story that Koala Deer awoke sometime the next morning alive and surprisingly unharmed. However, he never saw his beloved Jenny or the fairy human she transformed into ever again. Deserved. And last on our list are the Ethethlon or the elves. So the Ethathlon are actually pygmy elves who inhabit the groves and valleys within Wales. And it's believed that the name actually comes from a combination of two Welsh words, el meaning spirit and elf meaning an element. And according to lore, they also quite enjoy dairy. They particularly prefer fairy butter and fairy victuals. And this is specifically specified as in our world, 
a butter-like substance that is actually found in the depths of the crevices of limestone. So some kind of limestone sludge. And their victuals are toadstools. And if anyone's not specifically familiar with toadstools, it's a poisonous mushroom. And it's said that they like to wear gloves made of the bells of the digitalis flower, also known as foxglove, which in itself is also a very natural sedative, or a, a strong natural sedative. And although there is no specific queen of the fairies, as there is only ever the royal king, Gwynup Nuth, he does have a wife. The elven queen itself, herself, is none other than Mab. Queen Mab. Really? Yeah. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. So the elfin queen of the fairies is none other than Queen Mab herself. Also, interestingly enough, the, 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 the name Mab and Wales and Welsh means little child. So the most famous tale of the Ethathlon is the tale of Rowley Pew. So according to lore, it said that Rowley Pew lived on a farm in Glenmorganshire, and he had the worst of luck. His crops never flourished, unlike his neighbors. His roof always leaked, despite his constant mending. His house was often damp, unlike his neighbors. And worst of all, his wife was feeble and not able to help out around the farm. So one day he was sitting on a wall on his property, thinking of moving away somewhere far away where maybe his fortunes might improve. When his thoughts were interrupted by a voice and this voice said to him, what's the matter? And when Rowley looked up, he saw this little elf standing below him. The elf then said, Hold your tongue. I know more about you than you've ever dreamed of. You're in trouble and you're going away, but you must stay now that I've spoken to you. Bid your wife to leave the candle burning when she goes to bed and say no more. And after that, the little elf quickly disappeared before his very eyes. So astonished at what happened, Rowley went inside and told his wife, Caddy, all about it. And they decided, well, okay, we'll leave the candle burning after we retire. And while they slept, the elves would come and do their baking, brewing, washing, mending, cleaning up the, the stables, making sure the animals were taking care of everything that they couldn't all do on their own. And not long after, Rowley and Caddy soon began to prosper a lot. They had good food, they had good drink, they had a clean stable, healthy crops, a dry house, and all their animals were well-kept and well-fed. And according to the legend, this went on every night for three years. Until one evening, Caddy became curious and wanted to see the little elves. So one night while Rowley was sleeping, she crept downstairs towards the kitchen, took a peep in the kitchen door through the wood panels and started watching them. And it said that the elves were whiling away, laughing, dancing, all the while cleaning. And apparently at this site, Caddy just couldn't restrain herself and she fell on the floor laughing, which apparently caught the Esselstyn off guard. And at that very moment, they scattered, disappeared, never to return. But it's got a bit of a happy ending because this went on every night for three years. Rowley and Caddy 
had prospered quite enough and were able to uh, continue on without the constant help of the elves. So I've got one last little fairy tidbit that I could not not add, especially for you. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? <laughs> I saved this for you for when you came back. I'm so excited. <laughs> and you you will be. Oh, you will be. Maybe you want to grab the cat? No, nah, she's asleep. You don't disturb a sleeping cat unless you want your hand bit off. All right. <laughs> but I can see her. <laughs> ah, okay. I just thought you wanted to hold something fluffy and cute for this one. So I, I, I really cannot end this. I know I've talked for a while, but I cannot end this section on fairy folklore without talking about one very cute, fluffy, and very important mode of transportation for the fae folk. Would you like to take a guess? Is it a giant cat? No, for the fairies, a giant cat? Is it a cat? No, it's not a cat. A rabbit? Nope. Oh, the rabbit would make sense. Given some of that medieval marginalia? Yeah, that, would make, that might make sense. I gave my guesses. Squirrel? No. Chinchilla? <laughs> you said right. cute and fluffy. The chinchillas are pretty darn cute. No, you ready for this one? Okay. All right, just don't bang on the table so I don't get a whole lot of uh, feedback. Hands off the table. I muted myself so that if I do, you can't hear it. You ready? Corgis. Oh my God. <laughs> I should have known. Welsh corgi, of course. <laughs> They're so cute with their, their little heart pushies. Specifically the Welsh Pembroke corgi. Oh my God. Oh my God. Now I need to go find me a corgi. Not a cat, a corgi. I need to add to my animals. One is not enough. <laughs> I was like, I know you, and I know you and doggies, and I know you love corgis. <laughs> corgis are so cute. Right? Yeah. Hold on so, one second. I'm going to find you a picture. No, I can't wait to hear the rest. Uh, I know. I know. I specifically saved this for you. Putting this in chat. I'm waiting for it to load. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I just, I can't see it. I'm sorry. Corgis are too cute for being put in armor. <laughs> Corgis, Corgis in the Fae. That's what we're going to talk about in this very last section of the Fae folk. <laughs> Lauren's doing a very, very happy dance right now. Corgis. <laughs> And it's actually believed that the, the word corgi itself, the word gi is dog and cor is Welsh for dwarf. So they're specifically called dog of the dwarfs or just dwarf dog because they're short, one of the two. So it's actually said, if you look at a typical corgi to this day, 
Many corgis have a little dark patch kind of under their shoulder. And it's actually called a fairy saddle because that is the place the fairies would sit when they would ride the corgis into battle. I need to find a corgi and I need to test this theory. <laughs> well, how is this not a movie? And, and I need to pinch their fluffy cheeks. How is this not a movie? I no, want face to see, cheeks. I want to see fair fairy folk and, and like in battle riding corgis wearing armor. How is this not a thing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I mean, I want to pinch my cat's cheeks right now because That's why I this. told you grab the cat. But she's I know, asleep. but she's asleep. <laughs> and if I disturb the sleeping cat, I will get my hand bit. <laughs> <laughs> she does not like disturbances when she's asleep. She's a cat. But, no, of course not. But I like to pinch her cheeks and she hates that too. So now I just want to pinch the corgi cheeks. Go I just want to pinch a corgi's little fat cheeks next to his little schnell. <laughs> Alrighty. So let's continue. And uh, so some even say that corgis, as dogs typically tend to do, sometimes will get a bit nippy. And if the corgi gets nippy, you just make sure you give it a collar that has iron or steel in it because it said that the fairies are adverse to these particular metals and they are getting nippy because the fairies trying to manipulate your dog. And because corgis are very quite small because they're quite short, it's believed that the fairies use the corgis much like we use horses in order to pull their carts and carriages and work their farms. And as I mentioned, also to ride them into battle. So one tale of humans coming across corgis and the fae goes as such. One day, two small children were wandering around the woods when they came across what they took to be foxes. They also seem to have come across a fairy funeral procession. So in the most common story, it's said that the Tulateg were in a major mythical war with the Gulithian. And when the children stumbled upon this unusual funeral procession, after this recent battle, two of the Tulateg happened to have died. And when the children happened upon this procession, they were intrigued. And one of the representatives of the Fae folk actually gifted the two corgis, which had belonged to the two fallen Fae fairies, over to the children. And as, as a means also help, have, helping the children with their chores. And when presenting the dogs to the children, one, this representative said that they are trained warriors in their own right, but they are more than warriors. They are also great helpers for the fairy folk. And this representative would go on to tell the children that corgis would be perfect to herd cows because their small size helps them come from being hit by the cow's hooves because they're short. Another version of the story actually goes that corgis have been in Wales since ancient times, belonging to the fairy never being seen by humans. And one day, the king and queen, that would be Mab, were off riding their royal corgis when they happened to pass by a small family who seemed to be struggling with their farm. Day after day, the king and queen riding their royal corgis would see this little family struggling. 
one other day, they happened to be out riding it again. And both came, were overcome with sadness and compassion for these humans that were struggling just to make a living and have enough food. At this exact same moment that they both felt this, these feelings for these humans, they also happened to find themselves falling off their corkies onto the ground. And the king was about to call a search party to go look for their beloved corgis when the queen said, there's no need, for the corgis will find the mortal humans who may need them more than we do. And the corgis would indeed find their way over to the small poor family, to the children who took them in, showed them to their parents, and the corgis became their pet. And corgis are a bit different than most dogs too, if you think about it. They're very short, they have kind of a long body fox-like face. They sort of flap, flippity-floppity ears as they go running. But is it possible that they come from the land of the Fae, originating in Wales? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, they are called Welsh Pembroke Corgis. <laughs> There's two different styles of Welsh Corgis. The one we're specifically talking about is yeah. the Pembroke Corgis. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The yes. word Welsh is in there, so I can see that. <laughs> Well, it's also possible that the ancestor of the Corgis came over to Wales in the 1100s by Flemish weavers or even possibly Scandinavian Norse raiders. In fact, if you look at a picture of the Swedish Valhund, they have a very similar resemblance. It's actually even possible that the Swedish Valhund were bred with the local Welsh dogs of the time, creating today's Corgi. And if you want to check it out, there's a really interesting and very fun to read poem by Anne Biddlecombe that was published in 1946 called Corgi Fantasy. And such is the tale of the Fae and the Corgis. Oh my gosh. I love the Corgis. I know you would. I couldn't Ellie. not add it. And you're back, so I can add it. Yes, yes, you could. However... This is not the end of our tales of Welsh lore. This is going on for a while, and I apologize, but this is fun. Sometimes you gotta <laughs> do something different. So, but I'm done talking, so on to you, Lauren. <laughs> the rest is you. So I'm now going to talk about the Kevildur. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, you did, I like that rolling sound. The rolling R's. So the Kevildur are similar to the Scottish Kelpie. So kind of like an equivalent, but they're not exactly the same. What's a Kelpie? I'm, I'm not getting into what a Scottish Kelpie is. But <laughs> just so they don't have to keep saying Kevildur, I'm going to call it the Welsh Kelpie. And I'll go on to discuss this. Okay. A Welsh Kelpie is described as a winged water horse. Literally. A winged water horse yes kefil is welsh for horse and dur is water so water horse i know it automatically reminded me of a seahorse i like seahorses not i didn't think of a literal land horse the way we think of horse i thought of a seahorse yeah but it's more of the idea of a horse with wings kind of um like Hercules's winged horse in the No, it's movie. a Pegasus that lives That's in water. It. Thank you. <laughs> Basically, uh, the 
Welsh Kelpie has the ability to shapeshift. Oh yeah. So it doesn't always look like a winged horse. Uh-oh. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The most common depiction of a Welsh Kelpie is that of a horse which rises from the water with a long mane and their hair is white. They're completely white. They are known to live in places such as ponds and lakes that are within the mountainous regions of Wales. So if you go on a hike into the mountains, be really careful near them ponds and lakes up there. Be really careful. While they're majorly peaceful creatures, they do have a temper. Therefore, don't don't anger them. Don't piss them off. Bad, bad idea. There's a myth surrounding a cavildur that would rise out of the waters to eat travelers who were alone. Hmm. Yeah, so maybe don't go alone. Be really careful. Look out and always go with a partner. There you go. So as they were shapeshifters, they were also known to change into the form of a beautiful woman. Where have we heard this before? Siren? Yep. Who would then learn lure a person to their doom. Ooh. Goodbye, world. Goodbye. But just so you know, here is the difference between a Kevildur and a Scottish Kelpie. While they have similar homes and appearances, you don't wish to approach a Scottish Kelpie at all. Because if you if you get near one and end up, you know, climbing onto their back, you stick to them, and then they take you underwater where they devour you. But the Kevildur doesn't do that? Not necessarily. It's only in specific legends. They're majorly known to be peaceful creatures hmm. in Welsh legend. Mm-hmm. In Scotland, however, expect to be eaten. Doesn't matter if you're man, woman, child, old, infirm. Doesn't matter. They will eat you. And now we'll go on to the next one. Ooh. It's one of my favorites. Ooh. Did I pronounce that right? Probably. We're going to go with it. Yeah. So very similar to the Kevildur, which has a, an equivalent similar to it, like the Scottish Kelpie. Scottish Kelpie. So does the Kuhuraith. The equivalent is the Irish Banshee. Oh, that would explain the Wraith part. So, one description of the Kahuraith is the appearance is basically that of a corpse. It's it's very similar in the looks of when we think of a banshee. Very thin and waif like, as if they haven't eaten, they have sunken cheeks, very sunken skin around the eyes, and, and such like that. You know, very, very stick thin. And the appearance of a kuhuraith is said to predict a death. Of course, I mean, what else would it predict? What would happen is they would moan, and if the moan was heard, then someone would be dying soon. We don't know who, we just know that a person would die. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of getting the, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound kind of a sense off of that last sentence? Yep. If it moans and you hear it, then someone's going to die. But if you don't hear it, then you're good. Probably because it hasn't been heard, so no one knows. And they would they would moan three times 
Why three? I don't know. Three seems to be a lucky slash unlucky number. However, it was also a premonition that someone's death was not a peaceful death. It would be very gruesome and grim. Another description of the Kohurai is that it there, there's no body. It's just a voice. And they are not visible. There's no physical presence. And they the this voice would just be a wail before a death and they were also known to cry out when several people would die due to some kind of disaster so not just one person all the time sometimes several people including those who died away from home yeah it just didn't matter where you were you could be at sea you could be on a whole nother continent interesting isn't it and then the last one i'm going to go into <laughs> I specifically asked for. They are the Kun Anun, basically the hounds of hell, but imagine it before Christianity. The hounds of the underworld. So they're not really hell hounds, but a little bit different. They're considered to be actually, they fall under fairy hounds. Hence the Anun. Yeah. I don't think they're corgis though. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think, no, I don't, I don't think so. They don't come with the description of a corgi at all. <laughs> the, the depiction that is described is they are pure white with a pinky red color in their ears with really bright eyes. Another depiction is that they're kind of like the liver color of a fur. So if you imagine the brownie color that actually is on a corgi, the brown and white, that brownie color is like a liver color, but imagine it's slightly darker with a slighter tinge of red. Oh, is that what liver color is? To me, liver color is like a purple brown. Uh, you Or you could just imagine like the original Pomeranian. If you think of a Pomeranian's major color, the, the brown Pomeranian is considered a liver. And they come with spots or stripes. <laughs> <laughs> I think Melissa's trying to, Melissa was trying to hold in her laughter there for a good second. <laughs> you had to, uh, just we're going by color and the goes like and they have stripes between zebra <laughs> almost oh, but wrong coloring <laughs> they they did become associated with the hounds of hell due to the rise of christianity the christian faith dubbed them the hounds of hell and therefore put them together with satan but really they were actually associated with the wild hunt do you know what the wild hunt is melissa i've heard of it well, the wild hunt is when a group of non-existent huntsmen or ghostly huntsmen, they kind of like came out of, out of the depths of the underworld idea. They would rise from the underworld. They would gather along with their horses and dogs and they would hunt either in the sky or on earth. They weren't subject to staying on land. And the hunters themselves were considered the dead or fairies, but most of the time they were really considered the dead, like spirits that would rise from the underworld. And the Kunanun also had, outside of the wild hunt, they had specific dates throughout the year that they were allowed to hunt. While hunting, it was easier to hear them from farther away. So the farther away you were from these hunting dogs, from the Kunanun, the easier you could hear them. If they were right up on you, you're about to die because you can't hear them. According oh, to, okay. 
Mm-hmm. You hear them from miles away, but if they're an inch from your face, yeah, you can't hear them. Isn't that interesting? It's the opposite of what we have in the living. Mm. So it kind of makes some sense, but that's everything I have on the Kunanin because there's not a lot on the Kunanin, unfortunately, with lores and legends. I was sad. Well, I think we're both done with our stories. Is there anything that you want to add before we go? Mm, no, nothing I really want to add other than I'm back! And once a corgi. Huh? I said, and once a corgi. <laughs> <laughs> She's back corgi, and she corgi. wants a corgi. <laughs> corgi, 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 corgi. <laughs> I don't need a dog though. So going to avoid that. No, no. My parents mm. already have two. I'm good. I can go visit. Well, I guess that's going to be all for today. Thank you everyone for listening. And if you want to get in touch with us, Lauren, where can they go? You can find us on Instagram at History Explains It All underscore podcast, as well as on our Facebook page, which is History Explains It All. And we do post on our Instagram and Facebook a Today in History and an Archaeology in the News twice a week there as well. So be sure to come check them out. If you have any suggestions, feel free to email them to us at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. If you do listen, on, listen to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a rate and or review. It really helps people to find us. And if you listen to us on Spotify, don't forget to check the episode notes for any episode-specific questions and polls. Awesome. Any other upcoming podcast information or anything we want to share before we sign off? Didn't you already give some away? Maybe. Yeah, you already gave some away. <laughs> Stop that. It's supposed to be a surprise for them. I'm so excited for that series, though. <laughs> well, I guess uh, on that note, we'll, we'll uh, sign off so she can, can work on the research for this surprise. <laughs> and we're not supposed to mention. <laughs> I think it's already late. You mentioned it. <laughs> All right. Thanks everyone for listening and we will be back next Thursday as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. <laughs> Bye everybody. <laughs> Bye.